Welcome to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling the political arubarus from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. You can find us at feministcoffeehour.com, Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes, at Fem Coffee Pod on Twitter, askfm slash feministcoffeehour, and if you want, you can even send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Karen. And I'm Elizabeth, and we're happy with our special guest today. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> Hi, my name's Amanda Marcotte. I'm a politics writer at Salon.com. So we were going to do our uh, Best of 2016 episode, but unfortunately um, we're going to instead have a recap of the election because we thought that was a little bit more relevant. And um, a Best of 2016 episode would be really, really short. (laughs) So um, that's why we asked Amanda to come on. She's been doing some really great analysis at Salon. I'm just impressed by the amount of stuff that you've churned out in the short time since the election ended about what we can expect and what we should kind of learn from the election results. So uh, the other thing we wanted to say is that Karen and I met online at two places and we didn't know that we were both friends on these two different websites. One was Reddit and one was Amanda's Turntable FM room. When yeah. Turntable FM was a thing. Panda Party. Yes, it's uh, called Panda Party. Yeah, rest in peace. Turntable uh, FM. <laughs> it was so fun while it lasted. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one thing that we thought was really interesting was Amanda wrote a post uh, at, at Salon, an article at Salon, about how 2016 is in a lot of ways like the 2000 election. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was struck me as strange that a lot of people weren't noticing this, especially since you see the same pattern in terms of it's the, only, the second time in, his, in, I guess, modern history, I don't know if all of history, that somebody won the popular vote and didn't win the Electoral College. So I was like, surely there are a lot of parallels here. And the more I looked into it, the more I was just like, it definitely reminds me of what happened in 2000, which was, you know, you had a Democrat who was, I would argue, infinitely more qualified to be in office, you know, certainly a great progressive with great, strong progressive values. I mean, I didn't love his VP pick, but, you know, that's politics. I love Al Gore, and he um, ran in this election where he just didn't get the coverage that he deserved. The media kind of created these narratives about him that were false, like claiming he was a liar. They never actually had evidence of this. You know, they claimed he bragged about inventing the internet. He didn't do that. Um, They just ran this completely belittling media coverage of him while also sort of inflating George W. Bush, which didn't happen in 2016, I don't think. I don't think Trump got the pass that Bush got in the 2000 election coverage. Um, you know, and I think they, you know, they've, I think what happens is the media gets a little tired of running these after many years in a row, they get tired of running the like good Democrat is a nerd and boring (laughs) stories, even though that's literally been true. Al Gore, John Kerry, you know, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, kind of an exception, but even he's kind of good and boring and good at his job and all that. And so instead they start coming up with narratives that are false and are more interesting and more exciting. And so you see that with Al Gore, you saw it again with Hillary Clinton, with this emails thing and the pneumonia thing and like all these non stories that got blown completely out of proportion. 
um, and ended up defining her in this way that Donald Trump didn't get defined by his immense amount of corruption. It's kind of scary that someone can say the things that he said, and you know those were stories, but then we kind of forgot about them. Um, when I when I've been going back and looking at stuff, you know, to think about how this happened, a lot of the things happened, people got really upset, and then we never talked about them again. Meanwhile, Benghazi and emails followed Hillary for years, so that's something that I think it speaks to the fact that people need to think more critically about media consumption, mm-hmm. and I think there needs to be. I don't know, maybe if the left has to take this on, just about how to create media literacy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. But as a journalist myself, I put more of the responsibility on journalists, you know, journalists. It's their responsibility. It shouldn't be the average person's responsibility to see through our... Can I curse on here? Yes. (laughs) To see through our bullshit. You know, we just shouldn't be serving our bullshit. We should be trying to inform the public instead of you know entertain them in this like ridiculous and misleading way i also wonder how much of what uh trump said while repulsive to us actually worked in his favor that all of these stories came out because i do think that uh there is kind of this uh group of people in the u.s that feel like they want to say and they get pleasure from the idea that they are inherently superior they want to act on that and somebody is now on a public platform feeling inherently superior and inherently entitled. And I wonder how much of all of the scandal actually kind of boosted his image in the minds of those people. Yeah, isn't that what Michelle Goldberg said in her article about how people kept talking about political correctness and when she said, what do you mean? They would say, I can't say things, but he's Mm -hmm. saying them for me. That kind of speaks to your idea right there. But, I mean, what about, like, the corruption and the fact that he's in the pocket of Vladimir Putin and you know, his, (laughs) I mean, do you think, and, you know, him bragging about sexual assault, well, maybe that's closer to it, but I think, like, I wonder if these people who think that it's amazing that he can get away with saying nasty things or even doing nasty things would say the same about the fact that he was self-dealing out of the Trump Foundation, Mm -hmm. that he was, that he shows every sign of intending to treat the government as a big grift, Mm -hmm. Uh, the Trump Mm -hmm. University stuff. I mean, I feel like those are not about political correctness, Mm -hmm. but about like, you know, basically breaking the law or getting close to it in order to steal money that really isn't yours. I wonder if that goes back to a failure of journalism to not explaining how serious those things are. And kind of preferring to cover the outrageous things he said versus the corrupt things that he did. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, one thing I noticed is I was looking back over it in all three debates, the moderator asked Hillary Clinton a question about her email server. And not once was Donald Trump asked a question about Trump University's fraud lawsuit, mm-hmm. which is a huge oversight because that's, that's an actual scandal, whereas the, e- the whole thing with the email scandal is we got 30,000 emails and found nothing in them. Right. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, you've written in the past about kind of uh, the right-wing narrative and, and grifter-dumb, uh, and so I'm wondering if, uh, if you would want to kind of talk about that in terms of how that might have played into the coverage of Donald Trump kind of being a grifter, but maybe he's he's our grifter, you know, for people on the right. Well, I mean, I think that that's a good point, that 
certain things are not going to offend conservatives and probably being a grifter is one of them. Like, um, Rick Perlstein, I think is the one who said that the sort of thing with the right is everyone thinks everybody else is the sucker. (laughs) And I think that there's a little bit of that with Donald Trump is people think that they're in on the joke with him when in fact they're, they're also, they are actually the sucker and they don't get it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that there is that aspect of it. You see a lot of grifting going on in right-wing media that you don't see going on in left-wing media. I mean, there's some, but it kind of tends to be bracketed off on the left. You know, you don't see The Nation or Salon or The New Republic selling gold or herbal supplements or whatever, but you see definitely see that on the right. You know, these survivalist kits, gold, buggery, all sorts of things. It's just kind of baked into the the way of, that right-wing media is. But what frustrated me was that the mainstream media just couldn't... They, they would report that he was involved in these things, but they wouldn't... They wouldn't really explain it thoroughly enough to the satisfaction. It's obvious. I mean, we have all the evidence of it. When they did that, when they did exit polling on this, they found that Hillary Clinton voters very clearly articulated the word email over and over again. Though I bet you 20 bucks, very few of them could actually tell you what the scandal was about. And when they were asked about Trump, they was they never really settled on anything that they that defined him. Mm-hmm. Karen and I were just talking about this. A lot of um, the reaction to the election results, I think, is a little bit... I think people are missing the mark. And I think and I think you linked this... What was it? It was in the Harvard Business Review mm-hmm. about how it was entirely about the, the white working class. And I think you pointed out that this article didn't even use the word union once. It used it once in a negative light. Right. I found that super interesting and telling. There's all this stuff about... And this is... I've singled out that Harvard Business Review one because it was sent to me a lot by a lot of people. People, I think, are, you know, really smart, in fact, and I couldn't get past that fact that she just never talked about labor organizing and just, I mean, the piece is really long. Mm -hmm. And, like, what part, what piece labor organizing played in the fact that the white working class used to vote for Democrats in bigger numbers, Mm -hmm. you know... Like, you can just track that. The decline of white working class voters voting for the Democrats tailors exactly to the decline of white working class people being in unions. You know, there are a lot of unions still, but the membership is on the decline, and the ones that exist are often, like, more more people of color than they used to be, which is good. That's one of the things that unions can do is sort of help people create an identity outside of these racial identities. But the fact is, that's the problem. The fewer white people are in unions, the less opportunities they have to define themselves as workers instead of as white people. And I think that's something maybe like a long con on the the Republican, I guess, movement is convincing people, namely white people, that they don't need unions or unions are bad Mm -hmm. or unions will hurt them. Because... In the state of Alabama, went for Trump, but they also voted to keep Alabama a right-to-work state, which weakens unions. And you would think if someone's looking out for their economic interests, because we keep hearing economic anxiety, then they would be voted to make unions stronger also. And that doesn't make any sense why you would vote to make your own union weaker in, in, in the face of that. Um, 
Well, I mean, I think it's both. I think a lot of people don't even necessarily think right, don't understand how right to work weakens unions. I talked to a couple of uh, labor experts when I was doing pieces on the Supreme Court and what it means with that Trump's going to be in president now. And one thing that struck me is that repeatedly when they were talking about right to work, they'd say that, you know, it was easy for, like, a lot of people will take advantage of being able to have unions represent you without having to pay union dues, mm -hmm. which is what right to work allows you to access. Mm -hmm. And they may not realize that that actually hurts them. So I think that sometimes they don't realize that they're voting away unions. They're just sort of imagining themselves as kind of voting for their ability to be free riders. But in fact, you're right. What it does is it get rid gets rid of the unions because they don't have any money. Exactly. And I mean... I just know this because my, my dad works in the labor movement. And he, well, he did for many years, is that it costs money to hire an attorney to look at a contract. It costs money to go to arbitration to work on this stuff and to just oversee your health insurance plan that the union negotiates for yeah, you. Yeah, unions have to hire mm -hmm. people part-time, full-time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah, I have friends who work full-time in labor. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if you don't belong to your union, you might not understand why a union needs to hire these people to work for you and benefit you in the long run. So I find that, um, you know, left talking points take a longer time to explain than right ones. And I'm not sure. I don't know if sound bites are the answer, but. I mean, you, the sound bite I think that always comes across to me with unions that helps is that, you know, if you're in a union, your salary, you can expect your salary will be X percentage bigger. I think that's a pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. that, yeah, that is a good way to, to explain it. Mm -hmm. I think the other piece of bad analysis that I've been seeing, um, <clears throat> there's a LinkedIn article, and they've changed the, the headline. It was originally why Trump could be good for feminism. But, I mean, I'm going to single out this person and link it in the show notes. But I've seen a lot of people saying, this is great because now we get to fight. And I just, you know, at the time, in my cynicism, I was like, well, where were you last week? Where were you on Tuesday? And... Mm -hmm. I'm probably lashing out at the wrong people because I'm sure some of the most of those people did vote on Tuesday and at the election. But um, I, I, I know people are trying to comfort themselves, but I don't know if this is the right way to comfort yourself and your friends by saying that it's ultimately a good thing because it's not. Yeah, and along those lines, I see people posting on social media like, "Oh, we we survived," you know, "LGBT rights survived Reagan," we survived Bush. Like, we'll survive this. And I, like, I just think, you know, how many people in the LGBT community died in the 80s? Like, yeah, if you talk to the people who did survive, they did. But AIDS research not being funded and being highly stigmatized resulted directly in the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of members of our community who were fighting then. I think it was know? hundreds of thousands, maybe even. I, maybe yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that much. In Hurricane Katrina, lots of Americans didn't survive the Bush administration because of, you know, his, his lack of... And not just Americans, but think of how many Iraqis died. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, short-sighted to speak for the world being able to survive the Trump presidency, especially mm -hmm. for an American. And it's really, it's bizarre. I'm torn. On the one hand, I want to criticize people who are now outraged, as opposed to being outraged in the lead up to the election. I want to ask people who are upset about Bannon now, 
where were they last year when he was appointed to the campaign manager position, you know? But on the other hand, I don't want to kind of do this purity purge where people who are on my side now, yeah. uh, I don't want to be critical of their honest efforts. Right. And so I find myself going back and forth between trying to be really supportive, but also my personal frustration where this was avoidable in my mind. Like, this was avoidable, <laughs> you know? Well, especially since it was, like, genuine purity politics that got us to this point in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, you know? Mm -hmm. Thinking again to that 2000 uh, piece, like... One of the things I think that really, you know, one of the reasons Clinton didn't win the Electoral College is not because Donald Trump got more votes. Mm -hmm. He didn't. Mm -hmm. He got about the same number of votes as Mitt Romney did in 2012. It's just that Clinton got three million votes less than, fewer than Barack Obama did in 2012. So mm -hmm. that's the difference. And that what all that means is that three million Democratic voters just stayed home. And why did they stay home? In part because... We got to enjoy 15 months of lefties running around saying that because she wasn't the purest, most pristine, perfect person ever, which I think has a lot to do with sexism, but they also did this to Al Gore in 2000. Mm -hmm. You know, I, people started to see her as corrupt when she wasn't, mm -hmm. see her as conservative when she's not, mm -hmm. and they just didn't feel like voting. It's funny no one did that to John Kerry. Then Dennis Kucinich's people didn't revolt and say, mm. well, I'm going to stay home now because... Well, because Bush was in office. Exactly. And people were reminded of that there is a big difference between mm. the parties. Oh, and, right. you know, I'm sure Hillary Clinton would have done pretty well in 2004 as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe Imagine even better. <laughs> she might have even done better than John Kerry. She might have even won, I, you know. I wonder about that. Yeah, I know. That's a scenario I had not considered. Yeah. One of my many fantasy <laughs> scenarios that I've been having since the result of the election. <laughs> and so that kind of brings us to, I think, if we could talk about Sanders' role in painting Clinton that way uh, and his inability to backtrack on that once she had legitimately won mm -hmm. the primary, I think that that really... I think he could have mobilized his voters to get behind Hillary Clinton if he actually wanted them to. I think that he played a very savvy political game where he said, you have to vote for Clinton, we just have to, which was exactly the narrative he was saying his followers should be uh, opposed to instead of saying, I don't believe the primary was rigged. Hillary Clinton won the primary fair and square. I concede the primary. Hillary is the best candidate. You know, I think that by allowing the narrative that the DNC committed some sort of voter fraud and by not refuting that narrative, he did not understand how to talk to his own base to mobilize them to vote for Hillary Clinton and ended up another, like, white man who got his indignation on and ended up with a president who is going to vote against his interests. I mean, he did try to rally them. Didn't he say that it wasn't rigged? I don't know. I know that his um, spokeswoman did. Yeah, his yeah. also Sanders. But I wonder if he even understood even what he was Twitter. on mission. Like, I don't think so. Um, he was at the DNC. I didn't go to this breakfast. I was at the DNC, um, but I heard about it and. He got up and he did this breakfast and he got up and started talking about Hillary Clinton and the audience just revolted on him and started booing him. So at that point it wasn't even about him and I don't mm -hmm. know, like, 
if Bernie Sanders couldn't give the man couldn't get behind Bernie Sanders the sainted image that they had propped up, then they were going to reject Bernie Sanders the person. And that, you know, I think it's hard to really. It it was just really awful at the DNC on the first day. Like the amount of booing and hissing and screaming from the Sanders people, it was just. I don't. I think it was only a third of the ones that were there basically, but. They were completely out of control. And, like, you just wanted to throttle them. You're like, grow the fuck up. Like, and, you know, I talked to a lot of them, and, like, a lot of them were cool. A lot of them were, like, this, you know, I voted Sanders. I'm a delegate for Sanders, you know, but I don't have a problem with Clinton winning. But a lot of them were just, like, loony. And I understand that losing is hard. (laughs) But, you know, I've backed candidates who've lost in primaries. I've just never felt this way about it. I just can't. Uh, She just got demonized. I don't know how much of that was Sanders, but he did, I do think, he let it go on more than it should have. Yeah, I think that that's part of it, for sure. And I think also when you run on, like, a populist anger uh, platform, it's really hard to walk that back afterwards. And so I think that that also might be part of it. And I think that Trump also kind of ran on a message of populist anger, even if his platform was not a populist platform. (laughs) Um, And so I think that it's a kind of, it's a narrative that a lot of people really uh, were excited about and found a lot of difficulty in transferring that passion to, like what you were saying, a boring, nerdy candidate who is just going to kind of work really hard to to find a way to push something through. But I think that goes back to what Amanda said about, you know, wanting to just tell these people to grow up. Mm-hmm, if you're exactly. a grown-up, you're going to have the boring, nerdy... Yeah. At least as a left... If, if you're a Democrat, you're going to have the boring, nerdy platform. Mm-hmm. And if, you know... But, you know, back to what you said about purity politics. I mm-hmm. It would be nice if all those people grew up and stayed involved. I don't mm-hmm. know how many of them will. Yeah... It's tough to me. I, it's I don't understand it. I must admit, and this may be a flaw in me. I don't know, but like, politics is my life. It's my career. I think about it twenty four seven, even when I'm not working. It's I have. It's hard for me to turn off it. It's all I think about. But this notion that politicians should get me fired up, and that that's like a thing. Like I should have my passion in it. I'm mm-hmm. like in a politician. I find that baffling. I mean, I loved Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. But, like, I didn't think that, like, I wasn't, like, it's, you know, I'm, like, my, what gets me aflame with, like, real passion is music or or my friends or even cat. I mean, anything. But politics, I mean, it's inherently a dirty business. You should probably always keep, like, your soul, like, a part of your soul out of it for its own sake. I agree with that. And as someone who has spent a lot of time in very local politics, once you see it up close, it's not fun. It's not, it's not something that I would say what we're painting here is like the average Bernie bro person is really going to enjoy is like going to a, you know, town planning board meeting or the amount of paperwork that you have to file to just run for city council Mm -hmm. in New York state or collecting signatures to get on the ballot for your representative because New York state election laws are kind of arcane. That kind of stuff isn't fun. And 
you have to have some amount of passion, but not for necessarily the candidate, but for the agenda and progressive ideals. And I would think that that would be what drives you to, you know, go out and, and knock on doors and talk to people and organize wouldn't be necessarily the person at the top of the ticket, but, you know, kind of what you think that they're going to fight for and their, their vision of the, of the future. But that's, that's a little bit more abstract than just, you know, Hillary stole the election. So, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, and also I do think, I think that that kind of goes back to kind of being torn about people who are fired up. Like, one of the things that's really cool about the left is that, like, we are progressive, which Mm -hmm. means we get young people. Like, we are cool, you Mm -hmm. know? I think you've written about that as well. Like, the left is cool. Like, (laughs) we're cool because of our politics. Like, we're cool because we're inclusive. We're cool because we accept variation in human expression, you know? Uh, And so I think that, like, how do we channel this passion into understanding of the wonkiness of politics? Because I think, you know... Bernie Sanders did get people excited, and it was so nice to have Obama who got people excited and was into the wonkiness, but, like, how do we bring these excited but disillusioned people into understanding, you know? like I mean, Bernie Sanders said he wants to do that with his organization, like, trying to get these people to all run for office and stuff, mm-hmm. and that would be But cool. then he put Jeff Weaver in charge. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but I, I think <laughs> Talk gonna, more about yeah. that for our listeners, yeah, so explain why that's, why that's a counterpoint. Bad, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you've been following the news on it, like, there was already immediately a staff revolt because Mm -hmm. Jeff Weaver is just, I mean, I like Bernie Sanders, I think, more than a lot of Clinton people do. And you would be, I know that his most hardcore fans would be surprised about that. (laughs) But, I mean, Jeff Weaver is just, I, I just dislike that guy very strongly. He's... He was obviously vindictive and petty, and I don't think he's a good organizer. I think that he his entire career experience is backing this guy who wins easily in a small state because you can literally shake everyone's hand in the entire state and you're done with it. You know, um, I think that he that Sanders keeps him around because he's a sycophant. And, um, you know, again, I'm not trying to pick on Sanders with that because um, most politicians are people that have big egos. It takes one to get into politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so sycophants are a common problem. It's just then to take this guy and put him in charge of a, a momentous task that a lot of people have tried to do. It's not like Sanders came up with this. And it's the other thing that frustrates me is like, I do see a lot of reinventing the wheel going on. It's like, well, why don't you just take all your lists and your resources and just give them to OFA, you know, or someone like that. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, I think there were a lot of good ideas there, but I am also worried that it's bound to fail because A, there are people who are already doing it better, and B, they didn't hire the right guy to be in charge of it. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but... If you are a woman who wants to run for office, there are a lot of resources out there like Emily's List and I think it was uh, the Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy Project. I'll link it in the show notes. And we also have an episode in which we talked yeah, about Yeah, we talked about the resources that are available to you if you want to run for office. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're a guy, we will um, find other resources for you like that Progressive in the show notes. change. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, PCC. and um, your local Democratic club. There's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of people there who... Um, 
you know, just talk to them and, and see what they know because they're going to know a lot most of the time. Hmm. Um, so we wanted to go back to kind of that whole thing about the, uh, the white working class thing and... Oh. oh, but it's more fun if you bring some guy, some white middle class dude who grew up in the city come lecture me about it. I, I, I do so enjoy being from rural West Texas, being told how my people think. Yeah. Does that happen to you a lot lately? It happens to me every time I go on Twitter and uh, more times in real life than I care to admit. Well, can we talk about what really tanked the election? Which was? The existence of trigger warnings. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yes, political the, correctness and the existence the of trigger The concept of warnings. microaggressions. <laughs> Which we also had an episode about on a different podcast. <laughs> but, um, yeah. No, I, 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 I hear you, Amanda. Um, um, as I've talked about on the podcast on um, mixed ethnicity, but my dad, for many years, it was a Latino truck driver before he was a union organizer. Mm-hmm. So this, this whole idea of... You know, and I think it was Charlie Pierce that said, why aren't you looking at why the white working class voted differently than the black and Latino working class? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, you'll have an answer there. But, you know, people are kind of freaking out now. There have been two articles about Trump voters very upset that he's going to repeal Obamacare. And to me, that just says, well, and, and then with the union stuff that we just talked about, that, that doesn't sound like someone who voted their economic anxieties to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was listening to NPR uh, Morning Edition. I listened to that in the morning, and uh, somebody was being interviewed in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. There was uh, a coal mining union meeting, uh, and they interviewed a few people there, and one of the women there who was a coal miner's wife, the the interview kind of went like, uh, you know, you've been a lifelong Democrat, but you say you voted for Trump in this election. Why? She said... Uh, Hillary Clinton wanted to give my husband uh, job training to do another job, but we don't want another job. We want the mine to stay open. The mine is closing, uh, and we want somebody to save the mining industry. And the interviewer followed up, so do you think that Trump is going to keep your mine open? And she goes, well, <laughs> and it's just like, well, we're just hoping it stays open a little longer. You know, she does not believe that Trump is going to keep her mine open, but she was so rejecting of any actual policy alternative or afraid of change, you know, and I think there's a sense that people feel like because they've done something for a long time, they are entitled to continue doing it. uh, And that even if it didn't make sense, Trump was going to fight for it or at least say it. Well, he will fight to keep the coal mines open. So maybe she's got a point there, but like, These other places where it's like factory jobs and Mm. stuff like one of the frustrating things about that is that a lot of those closures and a lot of these shifts are a little bit out of, you know, policy reach. And Mm. so unfortunately, the only things you can do, like an industry goes away, Mm. like the president can't just wave a wand and say, stay. But yeah, I mean, the coal mines, but part of the problem is in a sense, we should be mining for coal less. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it sucks. It's That's the dirt dirtiness of politics. And what makes things so hard is, like, sometimes you have to make hard choices. You know, we have to stop spewing as much coal pollution into the air because of the fate of our planet. I mean, I'm sorry, jobs are important and we should try to get people jobs, but we should also, mm-hmm. you know, try to slow down global warming. I mean, 
your job versus the fate of our planet is unfortunately that's just that's the choice in a lot of these unfortunate circumstances which is why Hillary's solution of providing training to these people so that they can find other jobs seems to me really palatable but I think to these people it did not feel palatable and I wonder also how do we reach people like that or when do we just kind of call it that people wanted a candidate who looked like them and well, skewed their I mean, opinions, this is also related to labor, know? though, because the, mm -hmm. the labor unions, even for the, the coal mines that exist or that will stay open until we get rid of coal, mm -hmm. are making sure that these workers are working in a safe condition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and a Democratic EPA or Democratic state or federal government is going to have safety regulations in place to to make sure that those miners survive and go home to their families at the end of the day. And that's something that I'm not sure why someone in such a dangerous job isn't more concerned about. Yeah. I mean, obviously there have good reason to be concerned about putting food on the table and everything. I, I definitely don't want to be underplaying that at all. I, on the contrary, I mean, it's very frustrating. I think, you know, all this doubly frustrates me because I think that there's a lot of creative solutions that could be thought of here, but mm -hmm. the Democrats are so busy trying to preserve what we've got against Republican encroachments that we can't even make any progress. Because you could imagine like a situation where if we had a healthy economy or healthier economy, we had some progress on healthcare and other things like that you know, freeing up time and energy for the Democrats to like work with the unions to come up with a solution that would help get people whose industries are going under into other jobs collectively. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I definitely could see someone like a Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama getting on board with that, but they can't because they're so busy cleaning up the messes that Republicans make. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And it, it just made me think of uh, Donald Trump's New York Times interview, which I've read the transcript of. Yeah, <laughs> I would terrifying. recommend reading the transcript yeah. to our listeners and to the analysis of the transcript, um, because I think all of the analyses of the transcript have been really trying to make sense of somebody who does not make sense. Right. And, you know, he was talking about, well, we don't make robotics in America, which I think is not true. I'm sure we have at least one robot. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, it's not true. And then when they said, well, could we get more jobs with wind uh, wind farms? And he said no, because That's reasons. a lie. I know, it's a lie, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, there's manufacturing jobs right there, but that's something that and is also not going to happen wind now. farms. They put mm -hmm. wind farms out where I grew up and people resisted them. Mm -hmm. And now that they're there, people vote for them because they are jobs in a place where jobs were disappearing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, but that's, you know, one of those win-win-win situations that unfortunately is going to not happen right now. Right. Um, and you wanted to talk, Karen, you wrote something about not just talking about people who, who voted their racial anxieties, but also their, their gender anxieties and talking about, can you say that, um, about white male supremacy as opposed to just... Well, I think you see that in the, the overwhelming number of men who, in general, voted. I think you see that also uh, across race, is that men voted for Trump and uh, more than women did. And so I think that that is also uh, a part of it that we should talk about. I think also, I get the sense, and it's funny, we were chatting before the episode, 
about ways that people can be sexist but would never call themselves sexist in using gendered slurs. But um, I think that when you ask these men, would you not vote for Hillary because she's a woman? Did you mm -hmm. vote for Trump because he's a man? Do you feel threatened in your masculinity mm -hmm. by voting for women? Uh, I don't think any of them would say that's definitely it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's exactly what I was thinking. They yes. just don't like her voice. Right. But then you, you see, like, there's something I don't trust about her. Uh, there's something weird about the emails. There's all these things that people are saying. I don't think she has stamina, mm -hmm. you know. And Trump really, really pounced on all of these, like, really vague slightly feminized, you know, uh, insults for her, or overtly feminized <laughs> insults for her. And I think that, um, and I also do think it is important to mention the white supremacy of it. I think uh, anyone who can forgive Trump for his comments about Mexicans, anyone who can forgive Trump for his comments about the Central Park Five, anyone who can forgive Trump for the overt racism of his entire campaign, for Steve Bannon, I think anyone who can vote for him in spite of that really does need to do introspection about their feelings on race and how important the experiences of people of different racial identities are kind of different in the U.S. Uh, I think that people really do need to have a look at themselves about that. Um, I agree. And there's still so much denial about how much of the campaign was motivated by that. Mm. Um, when you, when you, I forget what his name, the guy that's on Less Wrong Slate Star Codex wrote this entire... Oh, <laughs> two, three thousand word blog entry about why Trump wasn't a racist and he what? claims he voted for Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, if you haven't seen it. Um, if maybe, Trump's not a racist, no one's a racist. I guess that's what they want. Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, well, he said, well, he didn't actually go to a KKK rally. <laughs> And we never heard the tape of him. Well, we don't know that. Apprentice. Sorry. So, no, they all went so how yeah. would you know if you were <laughs> But, um, no, I, I agree. And, and, you know, people are talking about, um, you know, to a lot of white women like us, it's like, how did Trump win white women? And mm -hmm. um, I think when you have on the left all of these people that are saying, oh, it's because of economic anxiety, they're denying how much racism motivated white people to vote for Trump. Well, did you see those stats that showed that, like, a huge percentage of Republicans that said the economy was bad said it was good, like, days after Trump won? Like, there's been a lot of research that shows people's idea of the economy is bad mm -hmm. is often more of a reflection of who's in office and how they feel about that person than actual sense of, like, the economy. Especially when you're in an economic situation like we are, where the economy is recovering, but it's not as robust as it could be. Um, therefore, most people are doing all right. You can interpret that however. If you're doing all right, you can, you can decide that you're not doing as well as you should be, or you can decide that you're doing better than you could be. You, you know, you could be doing... It's very flexible in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, just looking ahead fun fights to come. I would recommend everyone read all of Amanda's articles about the Supreme Court, yes. which are terrifying. And just, you know, there's been a lot of press about Steve Bannon. And um, something that I find unfortunate is that because it was one of the first personnel picks announced, I think a lot of people put a lot of effort into trying to stop that from happening where I don't know if I'm the minority here, but I feel like save your energy for when there's actually going to be a vote. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I was. I everyone was posting on Facebook, for instance, about Steve Bannon, but mm-hmm. I waited for Jeff Sessions because mm-hmm. the Senate actually has to vote on the AG, mm-hmm. and so calling your senator um, and asking them to block, you know, Jeff Sessions is a better use of your time and energy. I mean, you can call and ask them to be against Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. You know, I called Chuck Schumer's office and said both. No on Sessions, please, and um, no on any Trump-based infrastructure bill, because those things are just grifts. Yeah, that's something also that, you know, in the days after the election, both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren said, well, if we want to rebuild American infrastructure, we'll work with you on that, but we're not going to let you take away anyone's civil rights. And then, you know, the details about the infrastructure plan came out, and it's just tax cuts for construction companies. Ones that already have contracts, too. So, mm-hmm. essentially, it's paying them twice for work they were already contracted to do. Right. Because that's the way I would explain it to anybody you're trying to talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we went back to the Bush administration. where You know, you call the, the Clear Skies Initiative, increases air pollution, and the Healthy Forests Initiative <laughs> destroys the forests. And now we're going to have our infrastructure bill that just doesn't rebuild the infrastructure. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, that's pretty awful. And, and I... <laughs> <laughs> and like, did you see Jonathan Chait's uh, mm. theory on why they're going to put Ben Carson in, ta- in charge of HUD? Um, well, because HUD is a um, an organization that already has grift problems under mm-hmm. Republicans, but now the president himself is going to be owning, in a non-blind trust, mm-hmm. construction companies. Mm-hmm. So oh, having somebody in charge of HUD who will literally just let the president give himself all these contracts... Is a, is a valuable asset for Donald Trump, and Penn Garson, Carson could be that person. Oh, I didn't even think about that. We were talking about this earlier, that yeah. if he's a neurosurgeon, why wouldn't they give him attorney general or Department of Health and Human Services? But that's the answer. Yeah. A surgeon general? Uh-huh, yeah, sure. You know, well, <laughs> yeah. a position that doctors usually exactly. have. Yeah. yeah. Why, wouldn't, you know, <laughs> why wouldn't you give the doctor the, the health stuff? But have him oversee... Replacing Obamacare. Love person care. (laughs) So, and then this was something else that I think people are feeling so upset and distraught by the election results. They're kind of looking for any kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And um, there is one light at the end of the tunnel that we will get to. But first I just wanted to say that the New York Times ran with this headline after their interview with Donald Trump that maybe he won't be so bad on climate change. (laughs) Which I had to say, then why did he appoint Ebel to the Mm -hmm. EPA? And, you know, there are several environmentalists, well, more environmentalist Republicans than others that he could have appointed, like Pataki, like Michael Bloomberg, mm-hmm. like um, Whitman, Schwarzenegger. There's there's several Republicans that he could have uh, had oversee the EPA mm-hmm. if he actually did care mm-hmm. about the environment. But he doesn't. And um, that's why we have a climate change denier in there instead. Yeah, not just a climate change denier, but somebody who has accepted money from oil, coal, oil yeah. industry. Like most of his uh, policy points come more from oil industry talking points than from research science. He's constantly like the only climate change denier who's cited in articles. And it's just like, okay, he's pushing this idea that there's not a consensus among scientists that he himself is not a scientist either. So it's kind of interesting. There's a there's like a long been a problem in the media of people, of journalists seizing on random comments instead of looking at 
somebody's actions to determine their views on something. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing generally, but it's even more dangerous with Donald Trump because we have a long record demonstrating that Donald Trump will say whatever the person in front of him wants to hear. Mm -hmm. So, and then he will say something completely different to the next person. Mm -hmm. so, you know, we know what Donald Trump's attitude on climate change is because of his appointments. And also there's a long campaign record that shows that he's in deep with the coal industry. I mean, Mike Pence made a point of bringing up coal as many times as he could during the vice presidential debate, even though it was never asked about. Mm -hmm. You know, he was spending all his time basically signaling that whatever the coal industry wants, it's going to get. You know, Trump has promised, and I believe he meant it, that he was going to overturn the clean power plan that Obama put into. Like, there's a long, like, whatever glib bullshit he says to a journalist is just that. Glib mm -hmm. bullshit should be mm -hmm. just ignored. Mm -hmm. Whatever comes out of his mouth, like, just when he's randomly ran, rambling on. But that's all anyone reports on, yeah. is random shit that comes out of his mouth. That's like every headline, every scandal, every trending topic is the random shit that comes out of his mouth. Yeah. Like, it's never, like, here's what's going to happen, it seems like. Mm -hmm. You have to dig for those articles. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so everybody okay. says that we should go back and look at revisit the Milgram experiments in the light of the Trump administration. But I would say we need to look at the Ash Conformity experiments, because Karen and I have been talking about this online, about how I think if you understand people's desire to conform to the people around them, you can often understand most of the stupid things that politicians say. And I think that goes for Hillary Clinton also. But I think for Donald Trump, it's especially important to ha have that in mind because of what you just said. He doesn't just occasionally say something that doesn't make sense. He's always conforming to the person next to him. And um, it's it's pretty terrifying. But if you, if you keep it in mind, it will help you make sense of the things that are coming out of his mouth. Um, but I did promise you some light at the end of the tunnel, which was um, what Amanda was saying about abortion rights article. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I went through a series of issue areas that people kind of told me that were of concern to them and looked at what the Supreme Court, what, what it's going to mean for Donald Trump to be able to replace Anton Scalia and then also possibly one of the liberal justices because two of them are getting up in years. Um, and it's mostly bad news on the environment, on labor, other things like that. On abortion rights, though, I think we shouldn't be too worried yet. Uh, one of the things that happened, one of the things that a lot of scholars told me that I talked to in lawyers was that a very recent and big decision tends to be very protective. And Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead, which was decided in July, it threw out a Texas law that basically was trying to use red tape to regulate abortion clinics out of existence with a bunch of medically unnecessary regulations. And because the court not only overthrew it, but overthrew it with like strongly worded language that suggested that any abortion regulation would have to demonstrate that it was medically necessary from here on out, that that's a huge obstacle and the lower courts are probably going to uphold it. And more importantly, from what I can tell, it took 10 to 15 to maybe even 20 years of anti-choice organizing and work and just scrapped it. Like, they are back to the drawing board. They're going to have to come up with some completely different rationale to challenge abortions. Legality, they're going to have to 
lobby lawmakers to pass laws. They're going to have to test some of them out. They're going to have to like go through the court system. It's going to take easily a decade for them to get anything. And that's only if they have something right now that they're working on, which I don't even see any evidence of. Mm -hmm. So on the legality of abortion, we are in a good place. My concern that I didn't get to in that article is that the anti-choice movement has already shifted gears towards attacking the affordability of contraception. Mm -hmm. as a, a, and, and that's more alarming in a couple of ways because, first of all, they have some promising avenues there, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And B, for attaining their goal, which I continue to believe is forcing women to experience more un un unwanted childbearing, mm -hmm it might be more effective even than banning abortion, mm -hmm. you know, because most women prevent unwanted childbearing through contraception, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. Yeah, and this is, like, so invoking for me about, like, how, yes, we have to fight now, but it would have, I remember back in the day where we had to convince people, like, no, their end game is getting rid of contraception. <laughs> Where that was like a yeah. wild idea that people were like, no, they don't want to limit contraception. They just really care about abortion. Yeah, you're fine. There was an article in Salon in 2000 about this, about yeah. the Republicans' end game being ending contraception access. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time, people were like, that doesn't make any sense. That's that's not true. But, you know, mm -hmm. somebody... I, I don't know who never accept that. that. Yeah, no, <laughs> 16 years ago, people were mm -hmm. saying, yeah, this is where we're headed. And I'm Unfortunately, it's it's become a common like we all accept that as part mm -hmm. of their goal now. We all see that it's out in the open. It's not something that they need to wedge in anymore. It is in. It's been and, wedged. Yeah, and there, there was an article in the New York Times kind of poo-pooing the idea of everybody on election night tweeting like "Get your IUD now," and they were saying that because um, if the Trump administration wanted to change Obamacare to not provide contraception without a copay. They'd have to put it in the federal register. Then you shouldn't worry. So which I have to so say, they have sixty extra yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what? Stuff goes through the federal register all the time. And mm -hmm. second of all, he could do it by executive order. I'm pretty sure. And could he? I don't uh, know. You don't know. They'll probably go through the federal register, yeah. but. Remember how quickly the HHS made that the rule? I mean, yeah. it was a, it was under review internally for a year, but that's because mm -hmm. they were looking at the research. But then when they put it in the Federal Register, it only took 60 days. Right, and there are drastic policy um, shifts between presidential administrations, like the global gag rule, mm -hmm. about what our foreign aid agencies can even tell people about abortion. Mm -hmm. And that switches every time the presidency changes parties. So I think um, someone who says, you know, just ignore what everybody's talking about, uh, you, you you need to think critically about your media, except when you're reading Salon, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, or when you're reading uh, me at Salon. I right. mean, I, well, that's all I'll commit to. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're, we're also thinking, what can we learn from the past, um, from, you know, the, the backlash in the 80s about what should we be thinking about and doing now? And I said, maybe I should go back and, and read Backlash by Susan Flutie because... I'm sad to say I have not yet read that. It's a big one, it's on my shelf. Um, and, you know, you were saying we, can, we, can, we learn about what people were organizing under Reagan. and. Well, yeah, I think I've, I've kind of gone back to I think that um, Donald Trump's closest parallel is Reagan, in my mind. He's uh, charismatic to some. You know, he comes from the entertainment industry, uh, and he kind of is 
untouchable by scandal, somehow overcomes every scandal, uh, and also has like some weird connection with Nazis. Um, and so I feel like, how do we look at what happened there? But I think that that's pessimistic Has a past as, well. as a Democrat. Hmm? Has a past as a Democrat. Exactly. But switched over to Republican for racial reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, uh, I think looking back to that time period, looking at how people organized, but unfortunately I don't think, I mean, the way that that wave ended was from H.W. being unpopular, not from Reagan not getting elected anymore, you know? I think H.W. Um, was easily defeatable by Clinton, but I don't know. We didn't defeat Reagan, you know? Like, Reagan got a lot of what he wanted. So... Yeah, even Iran-Contra didn't touch him, which is... I mean, mm -hmm. what I think with Trump is, like, everything's going to be Iran-Contra. It's going... Mm -hmm. I, I'm... I'm deeply worried that however bad people think it's going to be, it's going to be worse. Same. Yeah, I'm uh, the unfortunate pessimist at Thanksgiving. Uh, fortunately, my I was able to have, I know this is like another social media thing about talking to your family at Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, I come from a family uh, that tends to be liberal. Uh, and so it wasn't really an argument about uh, Trump uh, or Clinton deserving the presidency. It was much more like, is it really going to be so bad? And I'm definitely the voice of pessimism on that. Uh, a lot of people, I really, you know, I just want to say like, even if Trump is not the ideologue that he seems to be, all he has to do is not veto things. Like that's literally all he has to do is not veto something that the Republican Congress puts through. He doesn't have to actually believe what he's saying yeah. in order to have the actual consequences of what he's saying. And why would he veto anything that they put mm -hmm. forward? This is like what people don't get. It's mm -hmm. like, like, well, what if he doesn't agree with it? And I'm like, first of all, does he have those kinds of convictions? No. <laughs> Second of all, mm -hmm. he needs them to be Queenslings and he needs them to fall in line. Mm -hmm. And like the best and easiest way to get them to fall in line and look the other way when he's doing his corruption and his grift mm -hmm. is to give them what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. and the uh, spoiler alert for my husband's blog, Daylight Atheism, Adam was saying the other day, you know, is Paul Ryan just going to hold all of this stuff about him not putting his business in a blind trust so that if Trump ever decides that he's going to veto something, he'd be like, well, I'll just impeach you because you're incredibly corrupt. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, he might be beholden to any on the right who does not like something that he does or says because of you know the corruption and the complete he's almost completely enmeshed his administration with his business interests and his administration hasn't even begun right yeah it I mean like at this point like you just wonder if you can be hauled away in cuffs I don't know have we ever tested that as a country <laughs> not when he's on the floor of the Congress, I think other times probably. <laughs> um, I hope, uh, well, I know at least our Attorney General in New York, Eric Schneiderman, still investigating the uh, Trump Foundation. Mm -hmm. and, and I hope he continues. I'm sure that he will. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest lesson from the 80s and 90s, I think, is so many people on the left sort of just gave in and felt hopeless and I mm -hmm. think that made it worse and so we what we can learn from them is not to do that and just not budge an inch mm -hmm. not let the backlash get to us just persist in being who we are mm -hmm. that's good advice yeah um something that happened over Thanksgiving weekend was that Jill Stein decided to file for recounts in three yeah. states yeah um I'm smiling because you know, uh, I, I gave her a few bucks because mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, what is the 
how much money would I pay for Trump to not be president, which is <laughs> versus what are the chances I think this is going to work, which is, I don't know, one in 10 million. I would say. <laughs> so it's probably a formula. Like that yeah, 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 exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I gave a few bucks and, right. and, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to work, but. Yeah, it'd be kind of a neat story. I mean, I'd probably, like, let someone shoot my cat, you know, oh, just because, no. like, it's, I mean, that's terrible, but, like, this is the <laughs> fate of our nation. Yeah, like, see, But I wonder how much of this is part of the Republican strategy. It's like, oh, I will elect, like, I'm, the, I'm an evangelical, but I will elect somebody like Trump who is so counter to all of the morals that I'm taught in my books, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who's had infidelity, somebody who... And is proud of them. Is proud, yeah. Somebody who is just like goes against so many like Christian moral values. How much of that is like you saying I would like let somebody shoot my cat to stop Trump? I mean, how how credulous are they that he is going to put through other things that they think are important, or that Hillary Clinton is literally the devil? You know, <laughs> like very literally, literally, not like figuratively, literally. You know, <laughs> but like. I just wonder, you know, it makes me, because it's so easy to be, like, and this is how I feel about the Jill Stein recount, is like, oh, I really desperately hope this works. I want to do anything to stop it. I really, like, I don't want to talk to people who are like, the electors, the electors will vote against the, uh, that was called Bush, <laughs> against Trump. Uh, and it's just like, I don't want to tell them that they, they're, it's never going to happen, because there's so much of me that's like, please just let it happen like mm. what if you know there's like I'm starting to get superstitious I bought a pint of ice cream that was like from Ample Hills that was like Trump themed because it was orange marshmallow and uh, brownie <laughs> which I love and I was like why did I buy the Trump one I bought it on election night this is why it happened <laughs> you know I'm getting superstitious because it's just like I'm so desperate mm-hmm. for this to not be the case because it's, I'm very pessimistic and I think realistically pessimistic about this outcome. But anyway, I think the Jill Stein recount, I think what it's ultimately going to do is they're going to find that people did vote for Trump because the people who didn't vote for Trump ha- were victims of voter fraud and never got to cast their ballot. Yeah, yeah not voter fraud. <laughs> voter I mean, if it was yeah. one state... <laughs> That's a kind of fraud. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if it was only one state, I mm. think, you know, they'd have a lot better chance of flipping right. the results. But, you know, the, the number mm. in the Electoral College is so high right. that she'd have to flip all three states, right. which I don't think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. She might flip one. Mm-hmm. I don't know, even, but, yeah. There is, like, the, also the double concern that Scott Lemieux at Lawyers, Guns, and Money brought up, which is after the recount's over, that's going to help legitimize Trump even exactly. more. Because he's going to be able to run around saying, they did the recount and I won. And it's mm-hmm. like... Well, yeah, but she still had three million more votes. Yeah, right. yeah, the, that yeah. The recount won't give him the popular vote. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's something we shouldn't lose track of because right. I remember people lost track of that in two thousand, mm-hmm. and this time it's the margin of difference like six yeah. times bigger. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't know what value we get out of that politically necessarily, but I feel like mm-hmm. my gut says we should just never forget that she won. Oh, I agree. I, I agree because, you know, when people are, are feeling alienated, like, what country is this? Well, the majority of people have voted. Well, I only mean, 25% yeah. of Americans yeah. who are eligible to vote mm-hmm. voted for Trump. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something to, to not lose heart. And, I guess just finally, well, not finally, but the last thing that I, I want to say is, um, you know, to me, it's been feeling a lot like 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, Amanda gives me reasons to think maybe I should be thinking more about 2000. But I was thinking also about 
2008, where I was on a message board and one of my friends was like, when when uh, Hillary lost the primary, we're never going to have a woman president ever, ever, ever. And I just said, you know, it, it feels bad now, um, but uh, every time a woman has run for president, they've gotten farther than the person before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the situation that Geraldine Ferraro was in, mm-hmm. Versus, you know, then, and then we had a bunch of people, you know, and then, and, and the situation Shirley Chisholm was in. Um, and and then you look at, you know, more modern women who ran for president Mm -hmm. and, and, and Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote. We don't have that much more to go. And, and I, I still believe I'll live to see a woman president. So, um, to you guys. I don't think so. No, we have have (laughs) some. We have so many talented women mm-hmm. in the hopper, and people are like, "We don't have a, we have a bench problem." Like, I'm like, a fault. I like, mm-hmm. I'd vote for. I could see Kristen Gillibrand running. Mm-hmm. I could see a Kamala Harris running. Yes. You know, I could see a Tammy Duckworth running. I don't know about Tammy, if she should run, but I, I mean, I could see her running, mm-hmm. and I could see her doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we've all we. Uh, Elizabeth and I kind of talk about hoping that Tish James will run for office. I think a higher <laughs> office in, in New York City. Yeah. She's the uh, public advocate. Public advocate. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And if you're in New York, she's really great. Yeah. If, if she'll yeah, seek yeah. higher office, and if we could see her on a national stage, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Too. There were yeah. a lot of women mm-hmm. who ran for the, as Democrats for Senate this year, mm-hmm. and they didn't win in a lot of places, but they, you know, are talented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Formidable women that I would love to see run one day. Yeah, but I also wonder how many women who would be excellent candidates are disillusioned by what their battle will look like after seeing what they did to Hillary. And I think I think some of it comes from Hillary's kind of past, and and I think again like her lack of purity uh, and her change over time. But I do think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that she's a woman, even if it's not explicit. I think women who are considering running mm-hmm. see that. Well, we talked about this, mm-hmm. um, listeners, if you want to go back and listen to our Rebecca Lynch episode, mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine who ran for city council in New York City, mm-hmm. about the unique obstacles that women face running for office. And mm-hmm. I asked her that question. And I said, you know, what would you say to someone? She would just be like, you just have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, I thought that that was an incredibly outrageously <laughs> bold thing to say. No, you have to. And, I, and now I'm kind of thinking, yeah, you, you have to do it. So, what other choice do you have? Right, exactly. Like, so, yeah, run for office. Um, yes, listeners, please run for office. <laughs> see, that, that's a really good story idea. Yeah. I should remember that because that's like a question that has empirical like evidence you could look to like a year from now you know we call the emily's list and you mm-hmm. call the other pipeline organizations and see if interest has gone up because they saw a woman run and that mm-hmm. inspired them mm-hmm. or if it's gone down because they saw a woman run and get devastated and that demoralized them i, I kind of feel like it's brought out the contrarian in me because i always said you know if i ever ran for office it would be when i was had gray hair and was a lot more grandmotherly because i think that the sexism that older women face is a lot different than the sexism that young younger women face just from you know my experience mm-hmm. in politics and now and then i said well you know people are going to go through my twitter and look at boner jokes or whatever but now look at who's going to be president and his twitter didn't matter so why would anyone mm-hmm. so don't let that stop you either <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think 
that's a good place to end. <laughs> um, tagline. Yes. Some of this coffee hour. Run for president. Boner jokes and all. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where can people find you? Strong, stronger with dick jokes. <laughs> <laughs> stronger with dick jokes. I like that. That's good. Feminist coffee hour. Stronger with New tagline. It might be the end of the episode. All right. So where can people find you online, Amanda? Um, I, I, I'm right for Salon, and you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my name, Amanda Marcotte. Um, I try to make myself easy to find. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Karen, like U-H, Karen. <laughs> Uh, and so thanks so much for listening, and uh, I hope you're you're all... Trying to have happy holidays, yeah, everyone. Yeah, taking care of yourselves and your community, your direct community, in this devastating time. Mm-hmm. Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.